Are you confused about real food and what's healthy and good for the planet? Do you need the facts about local, organic, and sustainable food? Well, get ready to change the way you eat. Get ready for The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Appropriate Omnivore. I'm your host, Aaron Zober. My guest today is Uri Leo of Nourishing Traditions Kosher and Braskin Brine. Plus, desserts will tell you how to live appropriately in the upcoming week. But first, let's go to the appetizers and find out what's happening in the world of real food. Vernon Hershberger announced at his farm this past weekend that he's appealing his recent conviction. Hershberger was acquitted of the three charges against him for selling raw milk, but then was found guilty of selling milk after being ordered by a judge to not sell it. Hershberger says he's doing this so no precedent is set where the government can step in and ban food from private buying clubs. I'm completely behind Hershberger in his decision to appeal. It's wonderful to see that we have people like him fighting for our food freedoms. Next, a lot has been covered in the news about the overuse of Monsanto's Roundup herbicide, which is made for a glyphosate-based chemical solutions and sprayed over the millions of acres of all the GMO crops. Now even the pro-glyphosate scientists are acknowledging that the superweeds are resistant to Roundup and will end up destroying Monsanto's entire crop system. With even the supporters of Roundup admitting this, it's hard to see any reason why we should continue to use the herbicides. And finally, Oregon Governor John Kitzbuhler signed the bill into law that will ban production of canola inside the Willamette Valley Protected District. The bill came about after the Center for Food Safety sued the Oregon Department of Agriculture. When farmers became opposed to the decision allowing canola production in the Willamette Valley, the Center for Food Safety argued that canola cross-pollinates with crops such as broccoli, kale, and cabbage. As the majority of canola is genetically modified, it contaminates the crops around it and cross-pollinates with weeds, making them herbicide-resistant. Very pleased with Oregon's recent decision to ban this disgusting crop so it doesn't affect any of the organic plants growing in the area. And now, for the main course. With the Jewish High Holidays coming up in a little over a week, I want to do another episode about the relation between nourishing traditions and Jewish traditions. With both the Weston A. Price nutrient-dense diet and the kosher diet, there are similarities in areas such as raising animals properly, traditionally fermented foods, as well as both groups having an emphasis on family. Here to talk with me about nutrient-dense kosher food is Uri Leo. Uri runs the Yahoo group Nourishing Traditions Kosher. He also started Braska and Brine, which gives people in LA access to great locally made sauerkraut and other ferments. In addition to both of these great achievements, he also finds time to be a backyard beekeeper. So without further ado, let's give Uri a warm welcome to the appropriate omnivore. Yeah, thank you for having me, Aaron. I really appreciate it. This is a show that I'm very glad to be doing to let people know a bit about my Jewish heritage and culture. I see this in some way of talking about culture similar to how Dr. Weston Price traveled all over the world and learning about different cultures. So here, I'm introducing people about the Jewish culture. So I think this is a show not only just for people that are of a Jewish faith and Jewish background, but I think it's also for anyone interested in real food to see what they can learn from the traditionally Jewish foods about how to live sustainably. So why don't you tell the listeners a little about both your background with Judaism and then how you got into nutrient-dense, Weston Price-style diet? 
Um, my background in Judaism is I grew up in Reform Judaism in Orange County, California. Um, and long story short, uh, God got turned on to a more traditional Orthodox style Judaism towards the end of high school. Um, spent a couple of years in Hasidic yeshiva or seminary um, during and after college and really became a part of the Chabad Hasidic movement, um, and uh, which which is a philosophical movement descended from uh, the the originator of the movement. His name was the Baal Shem Tov, who lived about 250 to 280 years ago, um, and he was a, a mystic and all of the original Hasidim were this very sort of like um, like uh, like creative genius like self-imposed exile um, like uh, nature nature based mystics um, who sort of founded this philosophical movement which became Hasidic Judaism what we have that we have today and um, and today is, is becoming more and more popular sort of by the year around the world um, so that's sort of my background in Judaism, and then my background in nutrient-dense eating and living um, really, in my mind, started when I was doing um, a program called Adama, the Jewish Environmental Fellowship, um, which is a three-month uh, three sort of sustainable living and organic farming program um, in Connecticut. Now there's also a similar program which takes place in Berkeley, California. Um, but the program I did uh, takes place at the Isabella Friedman Jewish Retreat Center in, um, in Falls Village, Connecticut. Um, that's three months of being part of an organic farm with, you know, growing fruits and vegetables, um, taking care of goats and chickens, milking those goats, you know, depending on what time of year you're there for the program, it also involves those goats becoming pregnant or um, giving birth or, um, or, you know, slaughtering of certain of the goats because that's that's what happens in any type of dairy farm. You, you learn a lot of things on a when you're living on a farm about your food and where it comes from and um, what food is made of. And so that, that experience there really taught me um, for the first time in my life really um, more about what sustainable food is, what is nourishing food. The food I was eating at that time, which was, you know, as much as much raw goat milk as I as I as my heart could desire, um, fresh eggs every day from the chickens, as much of that organic fruits fruits and vegetables from our farm, um, you know, as as one would want. Um, and we were fermenting a ton of stuff too. That's where I originally learned to make sauerkraut and pickles and kimchi. Um, was on that farm, which of course, then you're getting all of the, the probiotics in, into your diet. And um, I had never felt, even though I was, you know, that was in 2008, so I'm still a young man, um, but I was an even younger man at that time. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure in, in very, very good health in general, but I had never felt as just, um, I never felt as completely well and vibrant as I did up until that time living on that farm and eating all these just real, you know, what, what you would, what one would call nutrient dense foods. Um, and so that, you know, that sort of opened my eyes. And that was sort of like in, in my personal life, there was these two sort of uh, puzzle pieces that 
I didn't even know that the, the, that the puzzle pieces were there, but they were waiting to be filled. And one of them was that, that spiritual dimension of just connecting with Hasidic Judaism, with the sort of mystical tradition of Judaism. And the other was, um, was, was this sort of um, sustainability aspect of connecting with uh, farming and food and, um, and food making and traditional, uh, traditional food making wisdom and technology, um, in which a lot, of has, you know, a lot of that technology has been forfeited for the sake of, um, say, speed in industry for the sake of producing food quickly. Of course, today we have the, the slow food movement, which is in opposition to the fast food movement. Um, so an example of that would be today, instead of fermenting out pickles or sauerkraut for sometimes, you know, one or two or three months at a time, today, now things are changing a bit, but most of the pickles you would ever buy in a large supermarket would have been just sort of like heat heat produced hot brine pickles which you know would just take a few hours and they're shelf stable they don't require any sort of temperature regulation at all so that's really convenient for industry a product that is is pretty quick to make and can sit on a shelf for you know say a hundred years um that's that's really great for industry not as great for our nutrition as a society um if you're if you're comparing it to these like probiotic you know uh more nutrient dense foods even if you're starting with the same ingredients a long fermentation process allows all of the nutrients in a food to to be released and to be developed so that your body can absorb it and get the most out of it. That's a great experience to have, being able to live on a farm. I certainly appreciate anyone that's been able to do that. I can't say I've done that, but certainly I try to visit as many farms, and just anyone that I talk to that's lived on a farm, that grew up on a farm or worked on a farm for part of their life, there's certainly a lot that you can learn. When you lived on that farm, was that your first exposure to raw milk? As far as I remember, yes, that was my first exposure to raw milk. And I, you know, I, I didn't really get, I didn't really understand at the time that there, that there was so much politics around raw milk, um, although I was starting to, to realize that. Um, but yes, that was my first exposure to raw milk, as far as I remember. And that was also where you got your first exposure to fermentation. And like you had said, there is a lot of fermentation in traditional Jewish dishes. I always yes. say that I think by being Jewish, that was actually how I was always used to the fermented pickles growing up. It happened that this Jewish family in Cleveland where I grew up had these great fermented pickles. So for me, I always was into the fermented pickles, not the ones that were made in the distilled vinegar, which is pasteurized. Of course, it wasn't until discovering Western Price that I really knew that there was any difference in it. I just thought that fermented pickles taste better, and I think most people would agree yeah, that I, fermentation I, I, tastes I better. Yeah, I think they taste a lot better. I mean, I don't think there's any comparison. But also dilly beans. Dilly beans are one of those things that are very, very rare nowadays, like good fermented dilly beans. And I, I had tasted some, you know, so like like pick, pickled beans recently at a farmer's market and, and they were not, you know, not made through fermentation and it's just totally, totally different flavor. And yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the fermented flavor myself now. And fermentation is certainly present in a lot of Jewish foods. 
such as yeah. wine or pickles that we had mentioned. Yeah, and what's very interesting for me, when you start to, I mean, especially for me, like the first couple of years, I mean, after living on that farm, I, I continued to, to live and work on more farms after that. I spent the next year on and off um, woofing, woofing, woof is an acronym, W-W-O-O-F, uh, something like Willing Workers on Organic Farms, where you can sort of travel the world um, working on organic farms in exchange for room and board. So I did that for uh, on and off uh, the year after that. Um, in Israel and on the East Coast. Um, and um, one of the really interesting, oh, so I started to become obs obsessed with fermentation, started to see sort of the world through the eyes of fermentation. And when you start to look at things in, in that light, you see a lot of connections that you didn't see before. So a really interesting thing that I noticed is one of the, like this, the central day of the week that sort of all of Judaism is organized around is Shabbat. And the, the sort of, one of the centers of Shabbat is the Shabbat meals, and especially the Friday night meal and the center of that meal, the foundation of that meal is the challah, the challah bread and, uh, and the wine, which are both traditional fermented foods. So the, the, the sort of the core of, of the Shabbat meal and which is the, the, the core of the Jewish week is fermented foods. Now, you know, they're fermented differently than, you know, it's, it's not like a a total lactic acid ferment like something like sauerkraut or, or cucumber pickles. But, um, you know, what would have been a traditional maybe fermented challah bread, if you're talking about before about 100, 150 years ago, it would have been a sourdough bread, in most cases made with, uh, with you know, sprouted grains, just because um, that's mostly what was available. I think Sally Fallon mentions that in her nourishing traditions. I think she has like, uh, there's a little, she has a little blurb in there about Passover, actually. Have you ever noticed that? I have, yeah, it's fascinating. She, she has a little blurb about Passover and something about how actually eating unfermented bread in the form of matzah, like once a year, is is like a type of cleanse, and it actually you know helps your system cleanse itself and and um, you know whatever her theory is there, which is really fascinating. Um, but. Yeah, so if you're talking about like my sort of uh, family's history, Ashkenazi Jews eating challah, you know, a couple hundred years ago would have been a really nice sourdough challah fermented with uh, with sprouted grains, and then the wine, of course, is is a yeast ferment. Um, but the idea, the idea, I think, behind both of those foods is you're taking something that is just, I mean, with fermentation as a metaphor for something that, that sort of, that connects to Shabbat and elevates Shabbat, is that in both cases, you're taking something mundane, you're taking something really prosaic. In the case of bread, you're taking those, um, those grains, those wheat grains or barley grains or whatever you have, that sort of in the, in the simple grain form, is we, we would sort of consider like animal food. Um, and same thing with, with grapes. You have, you know, sort of like table grapes or grape juice. We consider that sort of like food for for children or something. But you put it through a fermentation process, this sort of living alchemical process, which as we know today is like also enhances the nutrients and, and helps create these more nutrient-dense foods that we're, that our bodies now crave, especially in this modern world. And you end up with something that is totally transformed and elevated. You end up with 
with bread and wine, you know, real bread and real wine that, um, you know, that are fit for, for kings and queens to eat, fit to go on the tables of royalty. They're for adults. They're for our most, you know, holy and revered times of life. Um, you know, we have many times wine present uh, in, in if we need to, to sanctify a time. Um, so it's through that process of fermentation that we elevate the mundane. And I think that's sort of like a metaphor for what Shabbat is, of like we take the weekdays, which are our weekdays are abundant, but if we really want to value them and get the most out of them, then we take that one day a week and we sort of ferment those days up into Shabbat and we elevate them and, um, and create something that's, you know, that's higher and, and holier than, than all those other days. I like that a lot. And I like what you bring up about the challah and about how traditionally it was fermented as a sourdough with the sprouted grains, because there is certainly a lot of debate now within the real food community about are grains traditional food or not. And... I think you really have to look specifically at cultures. For some, it's been around longer than others. Judaism is one where you can see it, it is, such as the challah. Another type of bread that's common in Judaism is the rye bread, which traditionally is fermented, but a lot of rye bread you see now, is it fermented? Well, almost all the bread that you see now is, first of all, just the grains that we have today are, are not the same grains that people would have been you know, our ancestors would have been using even 200 years ago. They're, they're, the grains that, that are mostly grown today, even though they're not, for the most part, like grains that are used for bread are not genetically modified, but they have been hybridized and they have been bred in a way that, that they are different. And, you know, de depending on, um, you know, which, which theories you're reading about them, they're either they have more gluten or they're more difficult to digest for whatever reasons, or they're, they just have less less nutrients to begin with. Um, so the grains are different. The yeast is obviously totally different. The yeast makes makes a huge difference. Almost all the breads today are are being used with laboratory grown, just you know, quick yeast. Um, and they're not being made, and, and that's just yeast. They're not being made with this this you know vibrant culture of lactic acid bacteria with yeast, which is what traditional sourdough bread is made with. That's that's what gives it that sourness is the lactic acid bacteria in there. Um, you're not getting that in in modern bread. Like, is is there any you know? rye bread that you could buy in any stores right now that you know that that has like any type of sourness or is made with lactic acid bacteria i don't think so um the ingredients are totally different there's there's a book that i have that i would recommend to anyone who wants to first of all sort of get a glimpse at what bread used to be like before um sort of modern yeast and modern grains, um, what it used to look like and how to actually make it um, with those traditional methods. And it's called Tartine Bread. Um, it's by a baker up in Northern California. Um, I think his bakery is just called Tartine Bread, but his name's Chad Robertson. And it's really just beautiful book and it's it's got just you know amazing beautiful recipes for bread that anyone can bake at home um you just need an oven and uh and a like cast iron dutch oven put inside your oven um and little patience you know it, it it that's the thing again talking about time and and fast food versus slow food is a traditional sourdough bread with those you know vibrant cultures of lactic acid bacteria mixed in with the yeast is going to be a longer process than just opening up a little packet of a quick dry yeast 
dropping in your bread and letting it puff up for, you know, a half hour. It could be like a four to five hour process or depending on what type of bread you're making, it could be a one to two day process. And in addition to using sourdough culture instead of the yeast, also like you had said earlier, how the type of grains we're using now are different. I'm also a big yeah. advocate of using some of these heirloom grains such as spelt, which I believe in the Torah you even see them referred to as spelt. Yes, spelt is one of the grains that is mentioned in the Torah. That's one of the um, grains that was used in ancient Israel. Um, yep. And spelt, actually today, spelt is very popular in Israel. I remember when I was living in Jerusalem, there is this bakery called the Natural Bakery um, that just has a lot of spelt products. For some reason, you don't see, I mean, I, I don't really see it here in Los Angeles at least, but um, in Jerusalem, for some reason, spelt is very popular as a grain. I think spelt should be a popular grain everywhere. It's not hybridized like modern wheat, so the gluten content is different, but it has a very similar structure to the modern wheat than these other types of alternative grains because it is the closest to it as far as history-wise. We'll talk more about the relationships between the Weston A. Price Foundation's nourishing traditions and the Jewish traditions, but first, we're going to have to take a commercial break. To Your Health Sprouted Flour Company offers organic sprouted grains and flours for all your baking needs. We have more than 34 sprouted products, hundreds of recipes, and are always available to answer your flour and baking questions. Whether you're making sourdough breads, French baguettes, birthday cakes, granola, or pancakes, let us be your sprouted grain and flour source. Certified organic and kosher, featuring 20 gluten-free sprouted products. And for the month of July, you get free shipping on orders of 15 pounds or more. Go to the website, organicsproutedflour.net or call toll-free at 877-401-6837 to start shopping. What is a healthy diet? Conflicting information is thrown at us daily. Help chart your course to wellness with a steady guide, the Weston A. Price Foundation. Our nutrition and health information is helping many families recover from degenerative disease and nutrient deficiencies. Join for only $40 a year and receive our quarterly journal. Visit our website, westonaprice.org, for more details. Olea Estates Olive Oil has been produced by the Cronus family on a small estate in Sparta, Greece since 1856. The olives are all certified organic and hand-picked. The oil is cold-pressed within 30 minutes and is extra virgin with an acidity of 0.24. I use Olea for all my olive oil needs, cooking, baking, salad dressing, hummus, and much more. Olea is distributed in the U.S. by Carl Berger. All products can be ordered on the website oleastates.com or by contacting Carl by email k-a-r-l at oleastates.com. And we're back. You're listening to The Appropriate Omnivore. I'm your host, Aaron Zober. I'm interviewing Uri Leo. Uri is the one that runs the Yahoo group Nourishing Traditions Kosher, as well as has the business Braskin Brine with the great sauerkrauts, kombuchas, and other ferments. And... We've been talking about the relationship between the Jewish traditions and the food talked about in nourishing traditions. Now, Uri, I'd like to get into what it's like being able to find food in L.A. that's both nutrient-dense and kosher. Um, so it's been difficult getting access to kosher, nutrient-dense foods. And I mean, we're talking about nutrient-dense foods. That's a whole, the whole spectrum of all different foods that are made. And that's in the categories of meat, dairy, fish, 
fruits, vegetables, grains, um, everything through that spectrum. So really when you're talking about kosher and access, you're talking about mostly meat and dairy um, and grains. Um, so that's the areas that it's been really, really difficult. And um, there hasn't been so on on the east coast there's there's been a pretty strong groundswell the last the last few years the last maybe 3 4 years in getting access in the kosher community to pasture raised um non you know no antibiotics no growth hormones uh animals for for meat um, and for milk, um, and you've got companies like uh, a couple friends of mine um, own a company called Grow and Behold. That one of the new companies providing access to much more sustainable options for meat, um, everything from chicken to uh, to lamb and and beef. Um, Grow and Behold, and then there's another company on the East Coast called KOL Kosher Organic Local. Um, they're doing the same thing, and those. So for a few years, if you wanted kosher slaughtered meat that was pasture raised without um, chemicals you know, and growth hormones and everything, you basically were, were ordering from those companies and having it shipped to you, um, which is super expensive because first of all, you're talking about the highest quality you know, meat you can buy, and, you know, pl plus it's being slaughtered slaughtered kosher in a kosher manner and then you're talking about shipping it on ice um so it's like super expensive and you know i'm a big believer in um you you get what you pay for in terms of food and either you can pay for good quality food now or you can pay the medical bills later it's sort of like a um maybe a, a scary way to look at it but that's at this point what i really believe either you can pay for good quality food that's nourishing your bones, nourishing your organs, nourishing your mind, um, that's going to hopefully keep keep you strong for your whole life. Or you can eat the food that's cheap, but that's, you know, sucking, it causes your, your body to have to suck away nutrients from your bones and from your organs um, and from your mind in order just to, just to keep alive. Um, so I believe in and you know, paying for good quality ingredients and good quality food, but um, but it's very expensive having it you know shipped and everything. So um, there's been a lot of people who are you know like myself who've been asking, what is it going to take? There's these there's a few great farmers in California already raising animals, raising them humanely, raising them on on grass pasture um, without any types of chemicals. What's it going to take for us to make this connection between those? farmers, those ranchers, and a kosher slaughterer, a shaykhet, and, uh, and get that meat butchered and get it to people. It's the, you know, the, the same meat that they're selling at the farmer's markets, like Day Days and um, uh, what's that one company? Five, five, oh, five Bar Beef. Five Bar Beef. And these various companies that are, that are like, what, what is it going to take just to get some of that meat slaughtered in a kosher manner and get it butchered? Um, so there have been people that have been working on building those connections. Um, one of my friends, one of my very close friends and a guy that I look up to a lot, Yaakov Lewis, has been working with, on that now for a couple of years and has been trying to make those connections. He's, he's in the long process of starting a... Um, a buying club, which 
that ideally that would be one of the things that we have access to in, in the buying club is locally raised grass-fed kosher slaughtered beef and lamb and whatever but um it's been really hard and other than that you can go to most of the of the kosher stores kosher markets and buy um pastured meat from south america from like uruguay i think it's mostly coming from um but there's you know, there's very little transparency around that meat, and and um, it's sort of like you just have to rely on what the the, the butcher there tells you. Like, there's there's never any type of, I and mean, there's just no transparency. It's like you go there, there's all of the normal meat out, and you ask, you know, can I have some of the grass-fed meat? And they'll say, sure, here it is, and it you know, it just sort of looks the same as all the other meat, and there's not really any way to tell other than the butcher telling you, here's the the grass-fed meat. Um, and then there's a couple you know what maybe in the in the uh is it the nourishing traditions buying guide the shopping guide the wise tradition shopping wise guide, traditions yeah and the wise traditions buying guide there's like best and then you know a good option and then like you know bad option so in good option there's also some just like organic meats that come from the east coast i think the brand is wise um so there's a few organic certified organic kosher meats that um, they were also, you know, again, lucky, lucky to have access to, but again, they're like more expensive than they should be if they were just sort of like being raised locally and slaughtered and you were just, you know, buying it uh, at your farmer's market or something. And then dairy, if, if you know, if you want access to, to like really kosher raw dairy, obviously around the United States, it's not even so easy just to get access to raw dairy in general especially you know high quality um high quality raw dairy because that's you know that's something when you start when one is starting to get into uh the politics of raw dairy and is very interested in access to raw dairy you just think any type of raw milk is better than pasteurized milk but what i think maybe people don't realize at first that you come to learn is that you you wouldn't want to there's a reason why most milk is pasteurized in the united states today and you wouldn't want to drink most of the milk that's produced in the United States raw. You would not want to drink it raw. It's coming out of, you know, filthy, those filthy um, cows that are living in, what are those pieces of barren land? Or the feedlots. Like, yeah, in feedlots. They're living in feedlots, sort of like ankle deep in their own muck. And, uh, you know, just sort of being hosed down when they walk in to be milked. Um, and I've seen actually one of the farms that I, one of the organic farms that I was, um, working on in Israel had like a few different sections of the farm. And one of them was just a sort of standard dairy farm um, that was not organic. And, um, and it was like up close, like I could walk there, you know, just whenever I wanted. But, you know, after lunch, I could walk out the back of the, of the cafeteria and there 20 feet away was the dairy with, which was basically like a feedlot. Um, and it's just scary to see uh what goes on and i you know you would never want to drink that milk raw that milk for sure you want it filtered you want it pasteurized um because who knows what's in it so getting access to to you know really good quality raw milk is is pretty hard in most places in the united states either just because it's it's hard to find good quality milk or because the laws don't allow for it. Um, but we're actually very blessed here in Los Angeles that um, Mark McAfee from Organic Pastures does runs of his of his milk, which uh, which are certified kosher, which are, you know, have a special kosher certification. And you can buy that 
at some places, and it's really quite amazing. And it's like the same price as you would pay for a normal run of organic pastures milk. So we're very lucky to have that. Um, sometimes you can get their cream as well. But the only reason that exists is because there was a bunch of mothers, there was a bunch of Jewish Orthodox mothers, from what I understand, um, here in L.A., who all really on board with the Weston A. Price Foundation and access to, to nutrient-dense foods, and they sort of, I think, approached the rabbis from the kosher certifying agency, and they said, we want to have this milk for our children, and it doesn't exist. Um, we need to do something about this. And they, they made it happen that, um, you know, now it's like a regular thing. It's, it's basically accessible almost all the time. And whenever they do a shipment of the, of the kosher runs of organic pastures, it like sells out. And I know people myself who go and they'll buy like five or ten jugs of it and they freeze it and it's it's actually quite amazing but so access to you know some of these foods here in LA has um, made has made me want to I mean one of the sort of answers that I'm playing around with is is why why can't just someone like me become a, a certified kosher slaughterer and then friends with all these farmers? I'm it wouldn't take that much if I was a certified kosher slaughterer. It wouldn't be that hard for me to just approach one of my friends who's a farmer and say, hey, me and some of my friends just want to you know buy buy ten of your chickens or whatever, and I'm gonna slaughter them and then we're gonna you know we'll butcher them. So I've been sort of training on and off. Now, for longer than I expected, but for a couple of years, I've been sort of training on and off um, in the laws of being a kosher slaughterer in the hopes of eventually getting certified so I can start doing that on some sort of community level. Um, I don't think I would be doing cows anytime soon if it, you know, if it all does go through, but just starting with as simple as chickens, just if people could get access to just locally raised, you know, um, non-GMO non fed and just guac kosher slaughtered chickens that would just make a huge difference the last time i even ate such a chicken like a, a real pasture raised like 100 percent pasture raised and then like slaughtered right in front of me and then i basically took it home and cooked it was um in about it's probably december of 2009 um and there's an organization called chazon which means vision um and that's uh the organization sort of like running what's called they called the new the new Jewish food movement and they have a food conference every year and at almost every food conference they sort of like push the envelope on pulling down the walls that that keep our food system from being transparent and especially our kosher food system there it's, it seems sometimes like there's there's even less transparency in the in the kosher food system so they every year at their conference they try to pull down those walls and they've done so that comes out to be that year they took whoever wanted to come to an actual farm to spend a day with the farmer who raised the chickens out we you know on the pasture where the chickens were raised they brought out a kosher slaughterer and um, and a rabbi just to oversee everything and like we you know the the slaughterer slaughtered the the chickens anyone who wanted to participate could participate in in f pulling out the feathers of the chickens eviscerating the chickens and we got to participate in every single step of the whole process in one year i think they slaughtered goats they've like done different things where you can actually and, and you know and maybe there's people who maybe were in their you know 30s or 40s or 50s who maybe had never 
seen an animal being slaughtered before, despite however much meat they had eaten in, in, their, in their lives. So Chazon really tries to, to get people to, to question, question the ethics around what foods they eat, um, to start to think about food in a mindful way. And not that they want everyone to eat meat, but, um, but I believe the man who runs the organization, his name is, is Nigel Savage, and uh, his name's Nigel. And I believe the, the way the story goes is that one of the conferences, he, he asked a group of people who were at, um, at his talk, how many of you are vegetarians? And, you know, people raised their hand. How many of you are omnivores? And certain people raised their hands. And then he asked, how many of you who are vegetarians would eat meat if, if, you, um, if you could participate in the slaughter or something like that. In other words, if you were there to ensure that you know, ethical standards were being met and that it was done with respect, et cetera. And surprisingly, a number of those people who were vegetarians raised their hands saying they would eat meat like if they thought about it, they would they would eat meat if they felt like it was done in eth- if it was slaughtered in an ethical way. You know, the animal was raised in an ethical way, it was slaughtered in an ethical way, and they could be there and participate in it. Um, and he also asked, "How many of you who eat meat would would not eat meat mm-hmm. if you had to participate in?" And a number of those people raised their hands who sort of prefer for their for their meat eating to 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 not be transparent. But that was sort of the impetus, I believe that's the story of, of how that became a thing at the Chazon Food Conference, of allowing people to, to participate in actually in like a slaughter and, and butchering process. Um, and so that's, that was the last time that I had that quality of chicken. It just it tasted different from, you know, from any other chicken that I remember eating, um, maybe since I was a child. My, my, my father is, is a hunter, and growing up, our freezer was sort of always full of, of game that he had hunted. <laughs> and I never really, you know, it was never, uh, that was just how it was. It was never strange to me at the time. Um, although at a certain point, you know, I sort of developed my own system of, of ethics around food when I was around 13, 14 years old. And then I started to think that that was strange that my, you know, that my father, who for all, all intents and purposes, you know, was living in, in modern suburban America would, you know, go out to these places and, and hunt deer and hunt, uh, you know, ducks and pheasant, whatever. I started to disagree with that when I was around 13, 14 years old, but I, looking back on it, that was probably really good quality um, meat from you know f- freshly killed and butchered animals, like mostly li- living in the wild. There's a lot to be you know if a person can hunt, like uh, of course, you know, like I mentioned, I didn't grow up orthodox or adhering to you know really any laws of of keeping kosher or anything. So killing an animal with with a gun is not a kosher way to kill an animal. So that was, it was not you know kosher food by any means. But in terms of quality, that's really great quality meat and there's a lot to be said for uh for hunting deer and getting your meat from deer in the united states because we've killed all the predators of deer and so in in certain areas of the country deer are just sort of like overbreeding and they're uh you know they're destroying forests they're they're and and for many years i didn't want to believe it like i didn't want to I thought it was just unethical to, you know, to hunt animals when you could buy meat at the store. Um, but when you look, when you look more into it, there are way, there unfortunately are way too many deer because we've killed all their predators and they're, they're hurting themselves. They're hurting the environments that they live in. And it's actually probably much more 
humane to um, just to to shoot you know certain numbers of them rather than to uh, to just let them sort of starve themselves to death, which is what you know in a normal checks and balances ecosystem, if the deer population expanded out of control, then their natural enemies would also, their populations would also expand and then contract and then expand and contract uh, with a deer population. But unfortunately, their their predators are gone. Right. Deer are certainly overpopulated species, and they are a great gamey thing where certainly a lot better than the meat that you find where it's heavily processed because they're wild animals. I like what you were saying a little earlier about Hazon. I was not familiar with it, but certainly become very interested. For people that want to know more about it, they have a website. It's hazon.org, and that's certainly an organization that I'd like to find more about because it covers on a yeah. couple different of areas that I'm involved with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's quite an amazing organization. And they not only do, do they run their own programs, but they also give money to a lot of other worthy programs that are working um, with food and food awareness, um, sustainable food, or uh, or just food awareness in the Jewish world. So like that, that program that I did in Connecticut, um, Adama, they give they give grant grants um, or they have given grants over the years to Adama um, to help run programs there which also build awareness around organic farming and um, sustainable and ethical you know animal husbandry etc and another organization related with kosher and sustainability is your page on Yahoo mm-hmm. the nourishing traditions kosher was part of the reason that you started it to try to connect people in LA, connect these different groups of people interested in sustainability and people interested in kosher, and a way to get more of that available where you were living? Well, when I started it, I was actually living in San Francisco, okay. and, I, and I think the winter of 2009. It was actually a little bit before mm-hmm. I did that that, uh, that chazon, um, you know, chicken slaughtering. Um, I think I'd started the group around that time, and it was just because I I just felt so isolated and I knew there were other people out there like me and I was starting to find them sort of like in the blogosphere. Um, I was, I had I started writing a blog at that time on these, these exact type of topics about sort of like farming in Judaism and fermentation in Judaism and um, just sustainable nutrient-dense foods in Judaism and, and look like sifting through stories from, you know, a couple hundred years ago and sifting through Jewish law and finding these sort of like beacons of light where it was like, you know, these aha moments of, oh, you know, this is where, this is when the food was real and you can see the evidence here in this story or in, you know, in this uh, little piece of Jewish law. So I started writing about that and some people were, were, you know, were into what I was writing and I knew that there were other people out there and I wanted to make it easier for us to engage in a conversation and for more people to engage in that conversation because it can feel very lonely when you're just sort of like, you know, there's, there's tons of Weston A. Price Foundation stuff going on, tons of farming stuff going on, but when you start saying like, okay, I have these sort of special um, special kosher needs, it's like you, you just feel all alone. Um, so I started that group and yeah, and pretty quickly, I mean, a, a good number of people joined. I think even till today, there's not much more than a hundred people in the group, but there are people from all over the world, from, 
you know, all over the United States to Canada to Israel. I think there's a few people in Europe and maybe Australia. And at various times, there's been a lot of uh, activity on there. People, you know, um, finding out from each other about recipes or certain recipes for holidays that that you know that use real nutrient dense ingredients um, or different methods for doing things or events. So so I was I'm really pleased with what has happened there. And that so that was sort of like a bridge in between the blog and in between the real world. So it went from, from that group on, on Yahoo to, yes, connecting with people actually here in L.A. And then with, with those people that I was connecting to over these issues to that coming out, like sort of spilling over into the real world and us having meetings and events. And I would say actually this evening in only about 20 minutes from now, I think our mutual friend, Lisa Rose, who is the author of the website Real Food Kosher, is giving a talk in Pico Robertson about eating real food with a busy schedule. How can you sort of be involved in a slow food mindset when maybe you have kids, you have a spouse, you have a job, you're balancing all these things, and then you're also telling me I have to soak my grains overnight, I have to, you know, I can't just buy fast food. Um, you know, I, I want to eat food that's that nourishes my, my bones and my organs and my mind. I have, to, I have to make these broths that, you know, maybe are taking five or six hours. I have to do all these things. I have to buy ingredients that are more expensive. How do I juggle that all? And that can be very, um, it can be difficult for a lot of people to, to make that transition. Um, so she's, she's giving a talk about that at a space called Common Ground in Pico Robertson, which is a space uh, run by my friend Yaakov Lewis, who I, I like to feel like the convergence of, of those people and like there's numerous other people and numerous other types of events that have happened, but but all of that is sort of like has been aided greatly by the activity that's gone on in the Yahoo group, and it's 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 evolved out into the real world. Um, we had an event a year ago. We went apple picking right before um, Rosh Hashanah. It was, it was an awesome event. Uh, I don't know if it's going to happen this year because I'm not really able to organize it because I work on Sundays. Last year I was or last year I think I took Sunday off, but I can't really do that anymore. But we went up to um, this area called Oak Glen and, and picked apples from these old, you know, heirloom apple varieties that you can't buy. You can't buy some of them in any store or farmer's market. You know, it's like some of them are maybe only grown on this one apple farm. Um, it was just such a beautiful day, like picking apples, getting ready for Rosh Hashanah, instead of just sort of going to going to the supermarket and picking out your, you know, wax-covered Frankenstein apple, um, which is, you know... Which is maybe fine, you know, that's fine. But it was it was just such a beautiful experience, and really, it was like a real spiritual preparation for Rosh Hashanah, being out in these like little mountains, and there, it was like it, it, you know, there was like a, a flash rain where like the, the sky was clear and beautiful, and then all of a sudden there was this like hot rain that like flooded everything out for like. 20 minutes and then just, you know, picking these apples and you could press your, the apples into your own fresh apple cider right there. And like that, that's what I feel like one of the things getting ready for Rosh Hashanah should be like going out to this beautiful space and like connecting with those apples that you're going to be taking on Rosh Hashanah. And, you know, the, the tradition is to dip an apple into honey and to say, you know, this, this should be that, you know, God, God should grant us a, a sweet year. Um, and I feel like, again, it's like 
you're, you're asking God for a lot of good things in the coming year, and you can at least sort of do your part. Like, when you're asking for sweetness, you know, I think it was Wendell Berry. Wendell Berry, I believe, is the one who said, eating is an agricultural act. Anytime you eat, you're, you know, supporting some type of agricultural system. And when you're saying God grant us a sweet year, it's like either you're saying, God, I'm going to, I'm like buying this apple that's sort of supporting this system that is killing people and killing the oceans and however sort of extreme that sounds like it's true if you know when you really look at the facts um or you can say i'm you know i'm i'm buying into this system um that's supporting a beautiful healthy world and clean air and clean water and clean soil and that my children are going to be able to enjoy and my grandchildren are going to be able to enjoy and it's i'm doing my part to to make that to make the world in, into that beautiful space and to to do as much for myself in the food that i buy or the food that I make or the food that I pick. I'm going to do my part to make sure that it's supporting a beautiful vision of the world. And God, can you, you know, help enhance that, that effort? Um, I feel like there's like, there's so much more depth to that than, okay, we went to the store, we bought all our stuff. And now we're, we're now we're like, sort of like being like whiny kids, like, God, please, even though I'm, I'm supporting this, I'm like, even though I'm like not, I'm like sort of sticking my head into the ground like an ostrich, like, like, please, God, uh, you know, give, you know, give, give me these blessings, even though I'm not really doing my part is like, kind of how I feel about it. I know that after eating apples from farmers at the farmers markets, I can't go back to eating the apples that are at the stores. And with Russia, you have the apples and honey, and honey's a similar way I know from getting honey from local beekeepers versus getting the honey. Even the one labeled as raw honey at Whole Foods, the ones that you find directly from the beekeepers is better. And in fact, I hear you're a local beekeeper. Yep. Yes, sir. Yeah, I'm also a local beekeeper. I was trained originally from um, some really gracious people um, in the Backwards Beekeepers, which is a sort of informal club based here in Los Angeles, headed by Kirk Anderson, our fearless leader. So Kirk and the Backwards Beekeepers teach this method of beekeeping that is the common nomenclature is it's just backwards beekeeping but that you know it doesn't really mean anything to people who aren't involved in it so the more maybe like specific term is beyond organic beekeeping um, and beyond organic because supposedly there aren't really any USDA organic standards for honey production there are standards for plant production and for most livestock production, but not really specifically for, for bees. So there are certain practices that a certified organic beekeeper can use that are not conducive to the long-term health of the beehive. And just an example of that, which is, you know, maybe maybe pretty benign, but from our perspective, it's, it's just not conducive to the health of the hive. And so an example would be one of the biggest threats to honeybees just in, in general, besides, you know, all the, the pesticides and genetically modified, uh, you know, pollen that's out in the world, is, uh, is a mite called the varroa mite, also known as varroa destructor. Um, and, no, you know, it has that name varroa destructor because when it first came to the United States, I think in the 80s, it was either the 80s or early 90s, if you got varroa mites inside your hive, 
it basically would would destroy a hive pretty quickly within you know something like two to six months just the hive would collapse um, and these mites um, live inside the hive they mostly feed on bee larvae so there's a few stages that a, that a bee goes through as, you know, from when it's laid as an egg by the queen inside of a cell, um, it hatches, becomes a little bee larva, um, and then the cell is closed up at a certain point when it's grown enough and the bee um, metamorphoses into an adult bee and then it comes out and it, you know, if it's a worker bee, it gets to work. If it's a drone bee, if it's a drone bee, which is, so a worker, the worker bees are all female bees. The drone bees are all male bees. This is just a little aside, but uh, so the majority of bees in a hive, usually it's around 85% are, or, or more, are, are these worker bees, are the females, and they're the ones who collect all the pollen and nectar. They, you know, def defend the hive. They build the, uh, they produce wax and they build the comb. Um, they take care of the young bees, um, they basically do everything. They, they take care of the queen, they feed the queen, whereas the, the male bees, <laughs> they don't even have stingers, they don't really even have serious working mouth parts that much. They can't even really chew themselves out of their, their own cells. They have to be helped out by the worker bees. So they sort of just hang out. And, you know, if they were, if they were people, I, I see them as sort of like, uh, you know, these, these moochers that sort of just hang out on, on your couch. They come over, they like eat your food, they drink your beer, they watch your TV, but they don't, they don't do anything other than that. So really the only thing that a drone bee does other than just eating and sort of hanging out is, is He's there to mate with a queen, and he mates once, and then he dies. So that's like that's the life of a of a worker bee. Most of them don't even get the chance to mate. Most of them they're just tossed out of the hive because they're just taking up valuable resources, and they're just left to starve to death. And there are, there are other sort of like what we would call evolutionary roles that the drone bees do play in a hive, but but mostly they don't do anything, which is funny. So back to the varroa mites. So the varroa mites will go into a cell when. Um, the queen has laid an egg, and they'll they'll like suckle on those bee larvae, and um, and that saps energy from the bee larvae, and it can deform them. And when you've got a real bad infestation of roa mites, it's basically just destroying all of your what's called brood, all of your baby bees. Um, it's just destroying all the baby bees in your hive, and and that's that's the end of a hive because in any single day, a queen could be laying a thousand or two thousand eggs. Any given day, there could be a thousand or two thousand bees dying in a hive, and you you, you wouldn't see that because they'll, they'll just die out in the field. They'll they'll literally work until they die, and there could be uh, one or two thousand bees being born and are you know coming out of their of their cells as adult bees. So there's a lot of activity and a lot of um, growth and renewal happening every single day in a hive. And if you're saying there's an infestation of these varroa mites that are crippling or, or killing a lot of the, of the brood, that's the end of, of a hive. Um, so there's different ways to react to the varroa mites being present in a hive. One of them used by mainstream beekeepers is to treat with chemicals called miticides, um, would be the class of chemicals, miticide meaning poison directed towards killing mites. The problem with miticides is you're putting poison into a beehive. Um, so while it kills, even if it kills 99% of the mites, which none of them kill 100% of the mites, um, <laughs> You've got a couple problems. One being the one percent of mites that survives is going to breed and and you know become that sort of resistant strain of, of mites like we like 
we have just developed all these resistance strains of all kinds of pests in the last, you know, 40, 50 years because of all the pesticides we've used that do not kill 100% of the pests and the, and the small percentage that survive breed and, and breed for uh, resistance to those pesticides. And the other thing is that the miticides affect the bees to a certain extent too, and it weakens their immune systems. And that's in addition to all of the other sort of like horrible factory farm conditions that, that most you know, industrial bees are, are raised in. So that's one way to re react to the mites. And, and you know, a lot of people don't know, even farmers who sell at farmer's markets, some of them, I mean, two of the farmer's markets that I'm in right now, I know that the farmers don't use miticides. And that's, um, I don't know if I could remember, the, oh, Klaus Bees is at Altadena. They don't use miticides from my conversations with them. And Honey Pacifica, from my conversations with them, they don't use miticides either. But so what an organic beekeeper might do is, is sprinkle powdered sugar in the hive, which which is supposed to deter mite. Um, and that's, you know, organic. It's not considered a chemical that would be forbidden in organic beekeeping. The problem with that from the backwards beekeeper's perspective is, is sugar has a certain acidity to it which is different from the acidity just naturally found inside of a hive and naturally found in honey. So it's just like, I mean, it's, it's similar to a human being who has a, a natural healthy acidity inside your body, inside your gut and your stomach. Um, and if you're just eating a ton of junk food, like a ton of just, you know, Twinkies and, and Coca-Cola, that's going to totally change the, the acidity of your gut. And it's going to open up your, your body to um, invasion from all different kinds of parasite and bad types of bacteria and fungi. So it's the exact same thing inside of a hive, and it's sort of like this political debate on how, how much that analogy is, is appropriate and how much it isn't. So if you talk to an, or, an organic beekeeper who uses something like powdered sugar, they'll usually... I mean, beekeepers are these sort of like very independent, very like stubborn people who make their own decisions. And once they've made a decision, like that's the best, that's the best thing there is. Um, so I've spoken with, you know, beekeepers in all these different camps and the ones who use miticides, that's their religion. It would be like, you know, telling, having a conversation between an atheist and a person who believes in God and the, and the atheist trying to convince the person who believes in God, that look, God just doesn't exist. It's like, there's no, there's not going to be any resolution. One person just believes one thing, one person belie believes another thing. So it's like, with someone who believes that miticides are the only answer to, to varroa mites, it's like, there, there is no other answer. Someone who believes in using powdered sugar, that's the only answer, and there's nothing wrong with it, and it's the best thing that there is. Um, so the only problem is, then you have people like the backwards beekeepers who do not use a single thing and what what we actually do is encourage our hives which are kept to mimic as much as possible a hive as it, it would as as it would exist in nature um, where you have feral beehives that have survived the varroa mite invasion and they're you know they're surviving and why is that so the theories on that are that I mean, there's a lot of different details that I, I don't want to go into because this is probably yeah. <laughs> more than more than you expected to begin with, but um, but basically it's about uh, strengthening the immune system of the bees, strengthening the immune system of the hive naturally, and letting the, the bees in the hive react to react to the varroa mites as they, as you know, as they're able to, and they're able to defend themselves. And so 
I have on one hand, uh, you know, an industrial bee farmer telling me that a, a hive can't survive more than two months without miticides. And then I have like my teachers like Kirk Anderson who have had hives for, for the better part of a decade, maybe some of those hives that have never been treated with miticides, of course, and are not treated with anything. And those hives are going strong, um, you know, after years and years and years. So it's like if you look at the truth on the ground, um, it's 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 pretty obvious, but um, so there's a lot of other things that that make backwards beekeepers backwards beekeepers. But that's why it's called beyond organic because it's like just there. Like we really go for about zero intervention unless it's like really necessary. And I think beyond organic is the future of farming. Well, Uri, thank you so much. Been a wealth of information about both <laughs> traditional foods and kosher, and then also about the backwards beekeeping. So we're gonna have to go in a second. But before we do. Please give the listeners the address where they can find your website for both Nourishing Traditions Kosher and also Brassica and Brine. Brassica and Brine is going to be brassicaandbrine.com. That's B-R-A-S-S-I-C-A-A-N-D-B-R-I-N-E.com. And uh, for Nourishing Traditions Kosher, you would want to go to the Yahoo Groups website, which is groups.yahoo.com, and you can search nourishing traditions kosher and um and that group should come up all right well great to have you and now for the desserts how to live appropriately in the upcoming week tomorrow wednesday august 28th the weston a price pasadena chapter will be holding its monthly potluck dinner this month's speaker is gluten-free baker suzanne peters she'll be demonstrating how to bake gluten-free desserts and will be bringing some samples that are gluten-free as well as paleo and primal friendly the event is held at the Nature Friends Clubhouse and starts at 6.30. Also, this Thursday, August 29th, the Urban Homestead in Pasadena will be holding a supper serving organic food from local farms and food artisans. The event will also include music from the old-time string band, Model Tees. The supper starts at 7, and for more info, check out the website at urbanhomesteadsupply.com. For a more detailed list of events going on in the Pasadena and Los Angeles area, Check out the community calendar on the Weston A. Price Pasadena's website at westonapricepasadena.blogspot.com. That's all for this week of The Appropriate Omnivore. My guest next week is Lana Jo Salat of the Ethical Omnivore Movement. For more information on my guests, as well as to listen to old episodes, visit my webpage at appropriateomnivore.com. Okay, well,